Thank you, Matt, for sharing our scripture reading with us this morning. We will be finishing up the book of Ezra today. We've uh, spent the last three months kind of working our way through this book, and we come to the end today. And uh, in many ways, we, we see Ezra ending uh, not as we would hope. There is no real, true, happy ending. All the issues are not resolved. Everything is not tied up in a happy bow. In fact, in many ways, as we get to the end of this book, we just find a lingering and a longing for more. And that's exactly what I believe God would stir in our hearts today, that we would we would cry out for more from our God. And as we think about this morning, what's happening this very week and what's continuing to go on in our nation Again, I just want to emphasize to us that I just have no doubt that there is one great need for the church of Jesus Christ here in the United States of America in these days. And it has nothing to do with a vaccine or the election on Tuesday or any number of other issues that we could bring to the forefront. Our greatest need as the people of God is the same need the people of God had in Ezra's day and in Moses' day and in, and in all times and all places. The need of God's people is this. We desperately need a greater grasp of the holiness of God and of our calling to be a set-apart people. That's what we need as we think about what's getting ready to happen on Tuesday, this ongoing pandemic, the, the racial unrest, and all the things that are happening around us. We, as the people of God, need to see that our God is holy and He has called us to be a holy people. And that means that we're called to be a set-apart people. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. But I want you to see... This is such a strong theme throughout the scriptures, the holiness of God and the holiness that are called, of the people that are called by God out of their sin and into his marvelous light. First Peter chapter one, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and he quotes from the book of Leviticus here, but this theme is throughout the scriptures, you shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. Now that sets before sinful men and women like you and I an impossible standard were it not for the cross of Jesus Christ. We have no ability to be holy except that our holy God saw fit to redeem rebellious sinners like us through the righteousness of Christ that was put on display in his cross. And so we can be holy and we must be holy. So again, three truths this morning about our calling to be a set apart people. Our call to be a set-apart people reminds us of these three things. First of all, as we see in verses 1 through 5 of the text that Matt just read for us, first of all, it reminds us that there is a covenant to be preserved. 
There's a promise from God that is to be upheld among the people of God. They speak of the covenant here. They are reminding themselves that that God's promise to his people, that they would be his people and he would be their God, that he would be to them a shield, that he would be their protection and their father and all of those things that are wrapped up in the covenant of God, that He's remind, they're reminding themselves, we've broken faith with our God. Look at verse 2. We've broken faith with our God, and yet Shechaniah, one of the leaders of the people here, says, but yet, even in this moment, when we've broken faith with our God, yet there is hope. We are sinners, and yet there is a Savior. There is hope to be found in Christ. But we remind ourselves that we are a covenant people. This is not just an Old Testament idea, but we live under what we call the new covenant. A covenant not established through the blood of of bulls and goats, but a covenant that's established through the blood of God's perfect Son, Jesus Christ. That we have entered into covenant fellowship with Him. And this covenant, just like all the rest of the covenants, is not based in our faithfulness. And that ought to get the loudest amen from all of us because if we were to begin to think about a covenant that was based upon our faithfulness, we are doomed. We have no hope that we're going to be able to fulfill a covenant with a holy God. And so God steps in as he did with Moses in Genesis chapter 12. And as he would later do with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Then Moses later on in the book of Exodus. And on and on, King Josiah and all kinds of different people that God established various covenants with. And renewed his covenant with. It's a constant reminder that God is the one who establishes his promise with us. So Robert Files said, what is happening here in these verses, this is a covenant renewal ceremony. It's not the only one we see in scripture. In fact, this one echoes the great reforms of King Josiah and Joshua's covenant renewal as they're preparing to enter the promised land. And we see all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, God renewing his covenant with his people. And by the way, that's what's at the very heart of revival. If we're going to pray for revival, we need to pray for covenant renewal. That God would bring us back to His Word. That God would bring us to our knees in prayer. That God would lead us in pathways of repentance and faith. That He would renew what only He can renew because it belongs to Him. So what does covenant renewal and the preservation of our covenant with God look like as demonstrated among God's people? Well, first of all, you see it right there in verse 1. It involves a weeping over sin. And I would just ask us, as I'm asking this, I'm asking myself, are we truly broken over sin? That's a hard question in the day which we live because we are constantly confronted with things that run directly contrary to the Word of God so much so that we become easily desensitized to the sin around us. And so we've been considering on a daily basis those that have passed away as a result of this COVID pandemic. 
And yet, do we realize that in our own state, in the same length of time as this pandemic, that we have aborted three times as many babies as all of those who have died from COVID? That's not making headlines, is it? No one's talking about that reality, but we need to be talking about it, not just talking about it, church. We need to be broken over that reality, not just as we go to the polls to vote, but as we hit our knees in prayer. This is a plague upon our nation far beyond what COVID will ever be. But are we broken hearted over these things? And are we broken hearted over the racial unrest in our nation? Do we look at what's happening and see the reality that the man-made theories that are being put forth and the legislation that would be enacted and the steps that would be taken by godless men will not resolve what sin has broken. We ought to be broken over the fact that racism continues to be an issue in our country. And by the way, it will be an issue among us until the day when King Jesus comes back, the one who does not treat us as our sins deserve, and the one who shows no favoritism based upon skin color or any other characteristic. When he returns, he will wipe out racism. But until then, we ought to be about the process of serving King Jesus in seeking true racial reconciliation and true justice that will not be found in man's theories, but will only be found in God's holy word. He has given us more than enough instructions. I could go on with many other things, but just this idea of being broken over sin, this is where revival begins. It always begins in that place. It's the attitude of James chapter 4, which says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. We sang that this morning, did we not? And purify your hearts, you double-minded. And we don't like these next words, but it's exactly what we need. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then what's the result of that? And he will exalt. This is not put on a pretty church face. Grin from ear to ear and pretend as if everything is okay. No, it's it's recognized we live in a world broken by sin. And that's not just somebody else's fault. The responsibility for that lies at our doorstep. And so we humble ourselves before God. And look for him to do the exalting. We only see God's people weeping over sin, but then in verses 2 through 4, we see God's word winning over sinners. Why? Why were they walking in these steps of repentance? It was because Ezra, back to chapter 7, as Matt referenced, Ezra 7:10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach his commandments and rules in Israel. Because Ezra, their leader, had set his focus upon the word of God. Then God's people, having learned the 
the word through their teacher, they then were able to walk in godly things because God had turned their hearts through the teaching of his word. It's the word of Christ that brings us to faith. Faith is not something we come to on our own. Faith is something that God brings about in us through the teaching of His good Word, through His truth that transforms us. It's God's Word that we see winning over sinners and continuing to do that today. If you find yourself as a child of God today, it's because of God's faithfulness toward you to send His Word through His Spirit that you might be redeemed. And then we see God's man walking in the spirit. And walking in the spirit here means doing some difficult things. As it says that Ezra arose and he made the leaders, the priests and the Levites and all of Israel to take an oath. This is the picture of entering back into the covenant. Let's renew our relationship with God Let's continue to to seek him in these things. And they said that they would do as had been said. And so they took the oath. This is leaders doing that which is difficult, leading God's people to repent and turn back to God, which I, I want you to understand this morning. That is no easy thing. We act as if repentance and turning back to God is just a a flip of the switch. It's not that. It requires the power of God to draw us back to Himself. But it also requires difficult things from us. And you begin to see that balance in in Ezra's life. Here in verse 5, Ezra rises up to do what God had called him to do. But in the very next verse, notice what it says in verse 6, Then Ezra withdrew. He rose up to the task and then immediately the weightiness of that task caused him to withdraw and to run back into the presence of God in that secret place. Romans 8, what God, for what God has done, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice it doesn't say that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in him, though it has been, but that it might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Yes, the fulfillment of the law is found in Christ, but it's also found in those who've been redeemed by His blood, who've been drawn into fellowship with Him by the Spirit and by the Word, that we see this power of God at work among His people. So there's a covenant to be preserved, but our our call as a set-apart people also reminds us that there's a consecration to be pursued. And that's what we see Ezra doing there in verse 6 as he withdraws into that secret place with God. He is seeking the face of God for what they are about to have to do because God was calling them to difficult things. 
By the end of this chapter, we see more than a hundred of the Israelite men listed by name who had transgressed the law, who had broken God's covenant in marrying these foreign wives. And again, these marriages, it was not an issue of race. It was a re- or an issue of religion. This was about the fact that these wives, as had happened in the days of Solomon, these wives had begun leading their hearts astray to false gods. And Ezra's looking at the situation and realizing the same sin that caused God to send us into exile in Babylon is being repeated. And if we don't run toward repentance, then we're going to find ourselves destroyed. And there will be no return this time around. In many ways, repentance was their only option. And I would say to us, church, here In 21st century America, repentance is our only option. We cannot continue to walk the godless paths that we have the last several decades and expect that God will just cast a blind eye to our rampant sin. And so we see God's man fasting and praying. So distraught over the sins of the people that he cannot even eat. He can only cry out to God. And perhaps his cry was, how long, O Lord? How long until you will call your people back to yourself? How long until you will show that you are the king above all kings? How long, O Lord? Fasting and praying the very thing that i believe is the call of god upon his people today many church leaders have called for tomorrow to be a day of prayer for the church and i want to add one thing that i have not heard added to this i want to encourage us not just to spend tomorrow as a a day of prayer and to set aside times for seeking the face of god but i want to encourage us to couple together with those prayers uh, something that the bible commends again and again i want to call us to a day tomorrow if you are able to seek the lord in prayer and fasting I know that there won't be an an ability for everyone, but I want to encourage us. These are the pathways that God has given. It's not just about how you're going to vote. And many of us have already voted. And I want to encourage you to get out and vote. I heard this morning that less than two-thirds of our community who is registered to vote will actually go to the polls. That breaks my heart. That we have the ability to go and participate in these things and yet yet a full third of us will just stay home and act as if it's no big deal. No, I'm saying to you, go and vote if you have not already. But a greater thing that you can do is this. Seek the face of God. And I believe that coupled with those prayers, there's this powerful thing called fasting where we deny ourselves in order that we might recognize more greatly our dependence upon God. Fasting is not some kind of religious exercise where we seek to twist the arm of God. If that's your idea of fasting, you misunderstand. Fasting is recognizing I am utterly dependent upon God for all things. And I'm going to exercise that dependence by denying myself that I might seek His face all the more. So I'd invite you to join me tomorrow. But let it begin this evening. 
As we come together for this prayer gathering tonight, we want to focus our attention upon this election, but many other things as well. We want to see this election in light of the kingdom of God. In light of the fact that King Jesus is not up for re-election. In light of the fact that His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and that our citizenship primarily, if you belong to the Lord, your citizenship is primarily one of heaven. And in light of those things, the greatest thing that we can do is pray. Unfortunately, we so often find ourselves in days and times in which prayer is our last resort when it should be our first weapon of this warfare in which we are engaged. And we are in a war. And it's bigger than the culture war, folks. I know we're hearing so much about the culture war and how we need to win the culture war. I want to say to us, it's so much bigger than that because culture is something that's passing away. But there is an eternal war. There is this kingdom warfare that we are engaged in. And the weapons of our warfare are not weapons of the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual weapons that are made for tearing down strongholds. And so we're praying not just for a candidate to get elected. We are praying that God would take hold of the heart of the man who sits in the White House. Regardless of what his name is. We're praying that God would turn our country toward himself in repentance. That's a work no politician can bring about, folks. We're praying for revival among so many of our churches which have been dead for many long years. And we're praying that God would do as He did in the days of Ezekiel and He would take dry bones and He would raise the dead in our day that we might see the power of God manifested as we've never seen it before. We're praying as Daniel prayed in Daniel 9. He said, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession. And by the way, if you want to know how to pray for our nation right now, go read Daniel chapter nine. We're going to read more of it tonight, but read Daniel chapter nine and see the heart of a man who was broken over sin, who was confessing to God the needs of his people. And God showed up and answered in the most miraculous of ways. Because if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Then God says, I will hear from heaven. And will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So we see God's man fasting and praying. Then we see God's people flocking together in partnership. And I think this is one of those instances, an Old Testament glimmer of the church, a foreshadowing of what God was going to do in the New Testament days, that he was going to bring people together from all kinds of nations and all kinds of backgrounds. And he was going to bring us together in this beautiful thing called the church, the, the assembly of God. So when we come together on Sunday morning, we, we are enacting the very plan and purpose of God to bring from among the nations people from every tribe and tongue and language that will one day gather around his throne. We're foreshadowing something greater, even as this was foreshadowing, I believe, the church as they come together in partnership with one another with the same statement of faith 
trusting in the word of God, not just in the words of some man or the promises of some politician, that they were coming together, flocking together as the people of God, recognizing they had one shepherd, one king, one great prophet who had spoken the word of God. And they come together in unity. That's what needs to happen in the church today. That we would come together in this kind of unity. Then we also see the opposite. Or at least the potential for it. We see God's enemies forfeiting their property. And I I know as we read verse 8, it sounds so harsh. It sounds so harsh, and yet, if you read it in rightfully in this context, you begin to understand, no, it's just that God's people were recognizing the true gravity of their situation. And I don't think that we are. Maybe some of you are, but I feel like for the most part, we're not recognizing the real gravity of our situation, that drastic measures are needed in our day. We're not recognizing that what it will come in the judgment of God if we continue on the paths we've been on for so long. And, and here, God's people, they, they issued this call. Everyone must come to Jerusalem. You've got three days. And if you don't show up, not only are you going to forfeit your property, but you're going to forfeit your place among God's people. You will not be welcome in worship at God's temple. You will be cast out in every way we can cast you out. And it sounds so harsh. Because we have forgotten what discipline really is and that we serve a God who as our Father disciplines those that He loves. Church, I am convinced that one of the reasons, one of the greatest reasons why our churches are in the state that they're in is because several generations ago we began to jettison this whole idea of discipline. We begin to cast a blind eye to sin, not just in the in the culture and in the community, but in the church. We begin to take on the, the attitude of Cain. Well, am I my brother's keeper? That's not my business. I don't have to worry about that. Oh, I know their marriage is falling apart, but that's their problem. Oh, I know that they're wrestling with a rebellious child, but that's... That's their issue. Oh, I know that he's struggling with pornography, but what can I do about it? We go on and on with the sins that we have cast a blind eye to in the church, and it has left us spiritually lethargic. So when we see these things manifesting in the culture around us, we are often left powerless because we have not come running back To the God who has all power. And in many ways we have forfeited our right. To stand before this culture. And to call them to repentance. Romans 6 says now. That you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to what? Sanctification. That's another word for That's the word for which God makes us holy as he is holy. Fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is what? Eternal life. See the process of God here? 
This is not just pray a prayer, get baptized, get your ticket to heaven, punch, and then just sit and stew until Jesus comes for you. That's not what this is. That there is a lifelong process by which God is sanctifying us. He is fulfilling His own command. Be holy as I am holy. That's what He is doing in His church. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that eternal life begins in the here and now, not just in the heaven to come. Finally this morning, We've seen there's a covenant to be preserved and a consecration to be pursued. But finally, there is a confession to be practiced. It's got to be more than words is what we're seeing here as we come to the close of this book. It's got to be more than just words that are spoken and promises that are made. There has to be action that stands behind what is going on. God's people must step out into what is difficult. And so we see there in verse 9 that God's people were, were conscious of their rebellion. They recognized, yes, we have sinned against a holy God and that ought to leave us in the most fearful place imaginable. And yet going back to verse 2, and yet there is hope. We ought to be freaked out. We ought to be way more scared of the wrath of God than we've ever been of COVID-19. We ought to be way more concerned about what King Jesus sitting on the throne of heaven is thinking than what the man sitting in the White House is going to do after Tuesday. We must be understanding that our rebellion leaves us in a place where we are deserving of the wrath of God. And then we see the response to that in verses 10 and 11. As God's man clearly calls them to repentance. To turning from their sin and trusting in God. That covenant renewal happening in their day. And his call to repentance is is echoed by Christ as he begins his earthly ministry. What was this which Jesus was preaching? What's at the very heart of what we're calling people to in these days? And we're seeking to walk in ourselves. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Well, what is that? Saying this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is now, not tomorrow, not after the election, not when COVID goes away and not when we get things back in in order with the economy. The time is now. And the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here among us. We can say that. It's even more than at hand. Jesus is saying this prior to the fulfillment of the the crowning of the king as he rose from the dead. The kingdom of God is not just at hand. It's here among us. We are a part of the kingdom of God. And we are called to expanding the kingdom through proclaiming this same gospel. And the call of the gospel is to repent and believe. And I know you hear that from this pulpit every Sunday. And I pray you continue to hear that from this pulpit every Sunday. And that word is not just for lost people, folks. God's call upon His church is repent and believe in the gospel. And that's not a one and done. You pray the prayer, you get dunked in the baptistry, and then you just find your seat in the pew until Jesus comes for you. That's not it. It's this continual process 
of repentance and faith that sanctifies us and prepares us for our heavenly home. And finally, and we'll close here. We see God's people conscious of their rebellion. God's man calling them to repentance. And then we see God's grace causing our redemption. Especially notice verse 14. In verse 14, as they're considering their situation, the people say, let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. So the plan of action in relation to their sin, and it was going to require difficult things, was not going to be easy. In fact, so much so that many scholars have even questioned the book of Ezra and say, how in the world could God have actually led them to do this because He's calling for a hundred plus men to divorce their wives and any children that had been born from those relationships to cast them out and to send them back to their own peoples. And we know Malachi 2 says God hates divorce, so surely that couldn't have been the plan of God. And maybe in some ways what we're looking at here is in that category of of the lesser of two evils. It's either that or the judgment of God is going to fall upon all of us. And in many ways, I know we're living in a day when we hear so often this talk of the lesser of two evils. But ultimately, our eyes need to be fixed upon the righteousness of God. Our eyes need to be fixed upon the fact that our king has called us to be a holy people. And at the end, he's going to wipe away both the greater evils and the lesser evils. And all that will remain is his goodness and righteousness and truth. But again, look at the end of verse 14. This is so powerful. Notice the word until. Let us do these things until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. What's he looking back to? He's looking back to verse 2 when he said, even now there's hope. And why is there hope? Because our God is a God of infinite mercy and grace. Who does not treat us as our sins deserve. Who instead of, as he would have every right to do, putting the fullness of his wrath upon us in everlasting destruction. Instead, he has chosen to put his wrath upon his sinless son. He has chosen to put all of our condemnation upon the perfect Christ. He has chosen to do for us what we could never have done for ourselves in wiping clean the slate of our sin that we might stand before Him not only not guilty, but stand before Him righteous because of Christ. 
And that's our standing before God so that Hebrews 4 can say, so then, so then, church, let us come boldly before His throne of grace with confidence that we might find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We come not before God in our own righteousness, for it is filthy rags. We come not before God in our sin, for we would be cast out. We come before God clothed in the righteousness of King Jesus. And He hears us. And He leads us in pathways of repentance and faith for His glory. And as Ezra concludes, again, we're just left with this place of wanting more. There's a, a longing that lingers in us as we come to the end of this book. We want to know what's the rest of the story. How does it all work out? There's so many loose ends that remain. And some would say, well, the answer to that's found in the book of Nehemiah. That's kind of the, the sequel to the book of Ezra. And we go to the book of Nehemiah and we get all the way through the days of Nehemiah. And we come to the end of Nehemiah and there's still this lingering longing for more. Everything's not tied up in a pretty bow. There continues to be unrest among God's people and, and issues and sin. And all the mess continues there. Because they were looking forward to a better day. Church, are we looking forward to a better day? Robert Files said in the bigger story, Ezra is pointing to the holy city where holy people will live and God's presence will be with them continually. Ezra, like many other biblical books, ends on an unfinished note. But God's purposes continue and will one day come to fulfillment. And, and church, that's where our hope lies. That's where our hope lies. That's where our eyes need to be fixed. Because according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. No more rebellion will be in that place. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, what is our response? Since you are waiting for these, there's a call upon God's people. Hear it so clearly. Be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Since we have these great and precious promises, don't sit back in the spiritual lazy boy and just wait for God to come pick you up. But be diligent to be found, to be found by Him. Holy, a set apart people, not living as the world lives, not being entertained by what the world's entertained by, not seeking after their false gods and their false hopes and their false promises, but setting before them something far greater and calling them to obedience to the King. Let's bow before King Jesus in prayer, church. Father, we sang this morning, all our hopes are fixed on you for your promises are true. One day you will return. All our treasures here will fade. All the things that we have 
put so much effort toward, so much trust in, moth and rust will destroy. But would you lead us, Father, today to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness? That where our treasure is, our heart would also be. That we would fix our eyes upon that which is eternal, setting our eyes on things above, not upon earthly things, but on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Where King Jesus is ruling and reigning. Where hope springs eternal. From the one who in and of himself is our hope. He is our peace. He is our righteousness. Redirect our gaze, Father. Lead us in repentance and faith. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. And fix our gaze upon your kingdom. Father, as we consider these things, would you continue to lead us in worship in light of your everlasting reign? We pray this in Jesus' name.